take our heels off, get into a deep fight, because we're about to fight to keep this station alive. Whose station? Our station. This is listener-sponsored, locally controlled, WBAI New York. All right, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons. That's coming up in this hour. And while that show is on the air, please consider becoming a financial supporter to this radio station in the name of Driving Forces by calling 516-620-3602. Or go to give to WBAI.org online. Stay tuned. Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. Thank you for staying with WBAI this afternoon. You just listened listened to special coverage with Linda Perry and Gary Nolan. Before that, one of my favorite shows to listen to here on WBAI, Let's Talk with John Kane and Regan DeLogans. I'm broadcasting from Jackson Heights in Queens, and I thank Reggie for making this all happen. Where I'm located is a short distance. If you're new to this station, or rather new to the show, I live a short distance from Elmhurst Hospital, and that has been one of the episodes centers of this pandemic in the early months. And while the numbers have dropped considerably here in Queens and in our city and state, the pandemic is very much a part of our lives and it is surging across our nation in a number of of states. I'm sure you've been hearing about what is going on in Florida and in California and in Texas. That is cause for concern, particularly as we all worry about a second wave and about people as they move about freely between different states. That is something that the governor has been incredibly concerned about here in New York. He held another news conference today. I'm not sure if you had listened to it, but uh, this was a few weeks after he said he was doing his final briefing, you know, his final daily briefing. But today was one that was worth listening to and watching because he was reminding people that there are still a number of concerns. He's just as troubled as I have been and many of us have been about the videos we've seen in recent days of people who are gathering outside of bars in some of the streets, including uh, a few in a neighborhood, a few neighborhoods over from me here in Queens and Astoria, where people were gathering in mass without masks uh, outside of a bar. If you had not heard some of those bars, I believe it was two or three over in Astoria, several in our city have had their liquor licenses uh, re, re, uh, re, taken away at this point uh, because of what, or at least their permits to be able to have serve alcohol outside uh, at this time because of what we have seen. It's incredibly concerning. Um, so on today's show, one of the things that we're going to do, if you stay with us for this whole hour, what I can't wait to get to is at the end of the show, I've got three fantastic guests, but I've been obsessed about knowing how contact tracing works. And a few weeks ago, I did have a guest on from Health and Hospitals who talked about 
overall what the program was like and about what testing is like. But I wanted to talk to a contact tracer. So in the final 15 minutes of the show, I'm going to have a contact tracer, someone who's on the front lines, who's been talking with people about this program and then trying to, the the city would use this information to be able to get in touch with others who've been in touch or in contact with people who've tested positive. And that's just been fascinating to me. And I'm glad I'm able to have uh, someone on the show to talk about that. So there's lots of news, but I'm just going to get to my first guest because he has been in the news a lot. And, you know, even when I booked him as a guest, I knew what I wanted to talk about. And then I opened up the paper today and there was a a package of bills that I'm going to ask him about uh, related to the pandemic that uh, that he's planning to introduce that switched a little of what I wanted to talk about. And I want to bring that up, too. But it's just he's someone who you are going to hear a lot more about. And that is. New York City Council member Richie Torres. He is making history in the 15th Congressional District in the Bronx um, because in the primary, in the Democratic primary that was just held a few weeks ago, now that the absentee ballots have been counted, he has he announced yesterday that he has succeeded and he will uh, be the next congressman. We have to get through November. We realize that. The next congressman to represent the 15th Council District in Central Bronx. So I'm very excited to have him back on the show. Uh, I'll say congressman. No, I can't say that. I'll say council member, Richie Torres. Welcome back to WBAI. It's an honor to be with you, Jeff. Thank you so much. And I want to get to your council legislation in just a short while because I was really happy to see, to read about this in the Daily News today. And I think this is an important uh, package of measures that you're going to be introducing. But let's talk just about the, the primary race. You uh, tweeted yesterday uh, that uh, you feel that it's mathematically insurmountable for any of the other candidates to surpass you at this point. Give our listeners the latest on the results. Yes. So on primary day, I had a lead of 4,000 votes. With the absentee vote count, the lead has grown to about 8,000 votes, which is larger than the number of remaining ballots. So even if every single uncounted ballot were to go to my nearest rival, I would still win by a wide margin. Right. I defeated my second place rival by more than 10 points among in-person voters and by more than 20 points among absentee voters. So the lead is so commanding as to be mathematically insurmountable. Right? And so if mathematics means anything at all, the race is over. And so if if it's mathematically insurmountable, have any of the other candidates called you to concede, to wish you well? I've seen that happen in other races so far. Has that happened in yours? I, I received no phone calls, but it's worth noting that Melissa Mark Verito did congratulate me via Twitter Twitter about a month ago. Um, I think Diaz Sr. acknowledged in an interview that he had been defeated about a month ago. But there are some candidates who refuse to concede. But, you know, whether or not my opponents concede has no bearing on the mathematical reality. What is your what message would you say your victory sends about the priorities of your constituency? I think my victory is living proof that this is a change election 
and I emerged as a change candidate. You know, I ran in the most fiercely contested congressional primary in New York City. There were 12 candidates, including five elected officials. And the front runner was said to have been Ruben Diaz Sr., who is known to be the most anti-LGBTQ, anti-choice, pro-Trump elected official in New York state politics. The conventional wisdom held that he was unbeatable, that this race could not be won. Uh, but with grassroots support, we not only won the race, but we defeated Ruben Diaz Sr. We defeated the politics of hate and fear by an overwhelming margin. And we sent him into retirement, which is exactly where he belongs. So I think the voters overwhelmingly cast their ballot for a new generation of leadership that's focused on the bread and butter concerns of health and housing, schools and jobs, especially in this volatile political moment, a moment of police reform and a moment when we desperately need support from the federal government. And, and, and you'll have to, by the way, excuse my dogs, because that's the, the issue with having to, to broadcast from home. Um, when talking about Ruben, Ruben Diaz Sr., um, you know, you had said that, uh, that if uh, he won, it would be like losing a seat for equality. Hey, Stella, stop barking. Sorry about that. Losing a seat for equality. Um, what do you think his legacy is going to be? His legacy is the politics of fear and hate. It's the politics of homophobia. You know, I remember when I first ran for public office at age 24, I had hesitation about running as an openly LGBTQ candidate because of the homophobic atmosphere that Ruben Diaz Sr. created in Bronx politics. So running against him was personal. And for me, the triumph of an openly LGBTQ candidate over the worst homophobe in New York state politics is a sign of how far we've come as a society. Uh, it's a sign that the homophobia of Ruben Diaz senior is a relic of the past. You have been one of the more dynamic New York city council members as you consider what, uh, what you want to achieve in Congress, what are some of the issues that you feel would be paramount for you to address and what committees would you want to serve on? So for me, the greatest challenge confronting the country is the affordability crisis. The crushing cost of housing, health care, and higher education. You know, in the South Bronx, more than half the residents there pay more than half their income toward their rent. And that's before you factor in the bare necessities of life, like food and transportation and prescription drugs and utilities. Um, many Bronx residents are struggling with housing insecurity and food insecurity and live in fear of eviction in the midst of COVID-19. And so my highest priority is affordable housing, is, to, is housing vouchers for all, ensure that every American in need has access to a housing voucher, which would cap rent at 30% of income. You know, whenever you're debating affordable housing, the question that ought to come to mind is affordable for whom? And most of the affordable housing that the government creates is unaffordable to the poorest New Yorker. And, and that's something we have to change. The, the metric that the federal government uses is area median income. The Bronx has the same area median income as Rockland County, even though Rockland County is much wealthier than the Bronx. For me, the proper standard of affordability is not an arbitrary metric like area median income. 
it's not even neighborhood income. It should be household income. You as a tenant should pay no more than 30% of your income toward your rent so that you can have uh, enough disposable income to address the basic necessities of life. Um, when I asked about also what committees you wish to serve on, you know, I was thinking of uh, you had a very good piece in the Washington Post, a column this week about a rule that prevents members from joining both the black and Hispanic caucuses. Um, I had read earlier today there was a report, I believe it was on Politico, that the head of the Congressional Black Caucus uh, had said there's nothing stopping incoming members who identify as both African-American and Latino from joining both of the caucuses. Uh, can you talk a little about any of developments that happened since your Washington Post column? So the head of the CBC and I are going to have a conversation over the weekend. Uh, so I have nothing uh, to report, but, but my understanding, based on the experiences of other Afro-Latinos in Congress, is that it is impossible to join both, whether it is a tradition or a policy or a rule, whatever you wish to call it, there are members who have been excluded from both, who have been forced to choose one. Uh, and I hope I have the opportunity to join both. I'm both Afro, I'm both black and Latino. I'm Afro Latino. And I feel strongly that I have a right to be part of both the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and the Congressional Black Caucus. And I'm, I'm confident that I'm going to achieve an internal resolution. And, and in reading up on you, you know, I like to pull quotes and, and bring them up. You had said at one point, quote, I am an agitator. Um, how do you want to be perceived by your eventual congressional colleagues? You know, someone who who acts according to his conscience, who strikes a balance between the inside game and the outside game, because I recognize that change arises from the creative tension between the two. Uh, someone who who speaks out when he thinks something is wrong, but at the same time recognizes that you need to be, build deep and durable relationships in Congress, and you need to leverage those relationships in order to advance the policy priorities that matter most to you. Uh, so that's how, I, that's how I hope to be perceived. I hope to be perceived as someone who's intellectually and morally serious about policymaking. Uh, that, that was my reputation in the city council, and I'm confident that's going to be my reputation in Congress. And uh, segueing then to the city council, I woke up this morning, read the Daily News, and uh, I wanted to ask you originally what some of your priorities are before you would depart the council, but this is a more immediate package of bills that you uh, are, are introducing. Can you talk a little about uh, this package uh, involving, related to the pandemic, and what some of the initiatives would be that you're going to present? Yes, I'm introducing a package aimed at improving the pandemic preparedness of New York City. Uh, at the heart of it is a bill that would establish an office of pandemic preparedness. There needs to be one entity that exists exclusively to comprehensively prepare the city and all city agencies for future pandemics. You know, as I said in the Daily News, we cannot afford to be as blindsided by future outbreaks as we were by COVID-19. And what is the greatest catastrophe beyond COVID-19 itself was the lack of preparedness. 
on the part of the city and the country, right? Judging by the conduct of both the city and the country, you would think that neither the city nor the country ever gave thought to pandemic preparedness, right? The city was slow to act. It was slow to conduct testing. It was slow to conduct contact tracing. It was slow to sound the public alarm about the risk of COVID-19. It was slow to ban mass gatherings and shut down schools. And when you're confronting an infectious disease outbreak, a delay of a few days or a few weeks can mean an exponentially higher death toll. So part of the reason there have been more than 20,000 deaths in New York City is not only the virus itself, it was a lack of pandemic preparedness on the part of both the city and the country. And um, I want to just, we've got just a few minutes left. Uh, I just want to ask about one of those uh, measures uh, involves the concern about uh, uh, prohibiting mass gatherings once the Department of Health declares a public health emergency. Was that as a result of what you've seen recently uh, with some of the videos? What prompted that specific measure? You no, know, that, that was based on the vacillation by the mayor himself. So you might remember when we were in the heart of the outbreak in mid-March, you know, the mayor was debating whether he should shut down the St. Patrick's Day parade. Like, you know, the governor had to intervene and get the parade canceled. But for me, decisions about mass gatherings during an infectious disease outbreak should be left to the judgment of public health professionals, not to the whims of politicians. We should be deciding these life and death issues based on science, not politics. And if there is a public health declaration, if there's a declaration of a public health emergency relating to a respiratory virus like coronavirus or influenza virus, a virus that spreads through person-to-person contact, then there should be an automatic trigger for a ban on mass gatherings. We should not leave it to politicians to, to make decisions that belong in the domain of public health. And we've got just about a minute or two left, and I just want to segue to the, to the personal. Um, you now will, will soon be the first uh, openly gay uh, uh, person. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. You were the first openly gay person to hold elective office in the Bronx. Uh, talk a little about, even as you move up to Congress, what this what message this sends to a younger generation, to all the LGBTQ kids out there who aren't sure about their life and what they will accomplish in life. Talk a little about how momentous an occasion this is for you. Look, I am set to be the first LGBTQ Afro-Latino member of Congress in the United States. And I hope that I can inspire others like me to run for public office, to be leaders in their community. I represent the possibility that an openly gay kid from the Bronx who grew up in poverty, who grew up in public housing, raised by a single mother, can overcome mental illness and substance abuse and racially concentrated poverty, can overcome overwhelming odds to become a leader, not only in his community, but in the halls of Congress. Right. That is the story of the Bronx. That's the story of America. That's the story of, of being made stronger and wiser by the struggles in your life. So I hope I can serve as an inspiration to people who see themselves and their own lived experiences and struggles 
uh, represented in my story. And on that note, Council Member Richie Torres, where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Uh, Torres.nyc. It's as easy as that. Thank you so much, Councilman, for appearing here on WBAI. I appreciate it, and best of luck. Take care. So you have been listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I was just talking with New York City Council member and congressional candidate Richie Torres. And in just a few minutes, we're going to talk to uh, one of the experts that I always like to chat with about the political landscape here in New York City. But before we get to Suri Kassir, I do want to take a minute or two just to thank you again for tuning in this afternoon. Uh, I was listening to yesterday's Max and Murphy show with Ben Max. I always tune in at the same time on Wednesdays when I could be home in time uh, to listen for more political insight. And I just want to let our listeners know we have such a great five o'clock uh, block uh, every uh, every day that you should really make it uh, make it a point of listening to WBAI at that hour. Some great political insight from a diversity of voices. And you don't get that everywhere. You know, um, Linda Perry in the last hour had said that we are the little radio station with a big heart. And that resonated with me because that's why I tuned into WBAI for years before even joining WBAI uh, as one of your hosts. And if WBAI means something to you, uh, you know, it, we would love it. I would love it in the name of this show if you could just become a BAI buddy or make a contribution just a one time or, you know, once a month like I do as a BAI buddy. Uh, I'm going to give you the number to call on the website uh, that you can go to if you'd like to make a contribution because, remember, we're non-commercial, we're non-corporate, and, you know, we've been around for 60 years and we want to be around for 60 more. The number to call to make a contribution is 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. And I mentioned a website. It's Give2, and that's the number two. Give2WBAI.org. Give2WBAI.org. And you can give anything. I know times are tight. They're really tough right now, uh, but... We want to stay on the air and we rely on your contributions. 917, uh, I'm sorry, 516-620-3602. Okay, so I mentioned my next guest. Very excited to have her back on the show. The last time she was on, I believe, uh, my co-host Celeste Katz was with me and we were both very excited. So Celeste is going to be a little disappointed she's not with us today. My next guest is always insightful about the state of politics and government in the city. She's the founder of Kassir in 1997, and she has grown the business into the top lobbying firm in New York City, working with a range of industries and sectors year after year. She's been recognized by Crane's New York Business and City and State as one of the most influential leaders in the city. Suri Kassir, welcome back to WBAI. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I know you for a really long time from the days that you were at New York One before you had your own business and was, were doing your own radio show. Um, and I've always admired your work. And so I'm really honored to uh, to be joining you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And given the fact that, you know, we've known each other for so long, we've always had uh, good conversations about the political dynamics. I was just talking with Richie Torres in the first part of the show. And when you take his election and you kind of broaden it to 
all the results that we've been seeing here in New York City in the last few weeks as absentees are being counted. What does this say about the progressive movement's impact and influence in the city right now? Well, I would say that, you know, Richie is uh, is a true uh, a true hero. Uh, you know, he was one of the uh, people who really ran in a very moderate way uh, in a, a relatively conservative district uh, in the sense that I think they the folks in that district really cared about leadership, economic development, uh, jobs, housing and so forth. Um, and, you know, he was not the left candidate, as you well know, uh, and he was not the candidate from the right who had lots of name recognition and whose previous Senate seat was a real majority of the congressional seat. So he raised a lot of money and uh, and ran a great race and won. And I'm really excited for him. I've gotten to know him really well as somebody who gets things done uh, from his days in the city council and uh, really, really thrilled that he won. Uh, but that's not the case uh, in many of the other races. Um, we, you know, obviously the final, uh, while people have declared themselves winners, uh, the Board of Elections, as you know, is still counting votes. And so they have not certified um, the elections as of yet. But so far, we've seen six uh, incumbent assembly Democrats uh, from New York City who lost to challengers from the left. Um, the DSA endorsed about nine candidates in state and federal elections, and many of them won. Um, and DSC affiliates uh, endorsed quite a number and also won. Um, so, you know, we've seen uh, I, I think that the concern for the party, both in Albany uh, as well as in Washington, um, is that some of those folks had a tremendous amount of seniority and also a tremendous knowledge of how government works and history uh, and things that were tried um, and the way to get things done, that some of the new folks um, that are a lot younger uh, and many of whom do not have any political experience uh, don't bring that history to the table. So they might bring a fresh approach. They might bring a sense of activism. Uh, they might change Albany in many uh, ways, but I think, uh, and, and many of them positive, but I think what they don't have, many of them, is the seniority. So when you think about Elliot Engel, or when you think about um, uh, someone like Nita Lowy, who decided not to run for re-election, and depending on what happens with Carolyn Maloney's seat, and I do believe in that seat she will pull through, um, uh, uh a lot of those folks have a tremendous amount of seniority that some of the newer folks uh, do not bring to the table. Uh, and the same is true in Albany. You look at somebody like uh, Joe Lentil, um, who, you know, was uh, a real leader and probably one of the longer serving leaders from New York City, maybe the longest um, currently. And, you know, to think that he won't be there. Uh, but somebody new will be there who doesn't bring what he brings to the table. So, you know, I think people feel that there's it's time for a change. And I think people want to see a lot of new faces and a fresh approach and activism. Um, and, you know, that in itself will bring its own challenges. What do you think this uh, the results are going to um, how are they going to influence the future of the Democratic Party here in the state? 
look, I think you're already seeing um, uh, the election of AOC change the party, um, you know, in the sense that lots of the conversation uh, for elected officials uh, becomes, um, you know, one of, you know, how do I make sure that in a Democratic primary where in my next election, whatever it is that the people are running for, uh, I don't alienate the left and I become potentially a candidate of the left. Um, you know, people are, are sort of taking positions that are not even things that they agree to. And, uh, you know, it's it's definitely concerned me that, you know, in watching some of the people that are thinking about the Manhattan DA's race, uh, they, you know, are supporting or have supported candidates uh, from the DSA that they fundamentally disagree with. Uh, I had a conversation with one candidate who was running for Manhattan DA uh, who endorsed Tiffany Caban. And I said to him, uh, first of all, why did you feel the need running for Manhattan DA to go into another borough and endorse somebody running? And they said, because uh, I'm concerned that the DSA has become very, very powerful. And I said, but do you agree with Tiffany Caban's position on jails? Do you agree with uh, her position on X, Y, and Z criminal justice issue? And the answer was no. And so I found it fascinating that someone would endorse somebody that they fundamentally disagreed with on many important positions because they were afraid of the DSA. And, you know, I think uh, that's that's something to be concerned about. We want our elected officials to be leaders. We want elected our elected officials to, to believe in their platform and their agenda and their policies that they want to see enacted, uh, not to lead out of fear. Uh, and, you know, uh, that's definitely concerning. How do you feel this is going to shape or, or influence the 2021 uh, mayoral race? Well, Jeff, that's a, that's a really uh, a phenomenal question. Uh, first of all, I think what's interesting is that we are seeing a number of black um, uh, potential candidates running for mayor. Uh, Maya Wiley uh, is talked about as somebody who might enter the race. Her father was active in the civil rights movement. Um, her brother actually works for uh, the Congresswoman Minnie Velasquez. And as you know, I think she served in Mayor de Blasio's administration. Um, uh, and, you know, some of the folks around the mayor, and I, I would assume that the mayor as well, uh, have been, you know, encouraging her to run. Uh, Ray McGuire, who's a business leader, who's currently at Citigroup, is talking about uh, jumping in and running. Uh, of course, Eric Adams, um, you know, uh, is ser a serious candidate. So, you know, it, it'll be interesting to sort of see how those things play out. And all of those three uh, black candidates uh, or potential candidates have very different positions on many issues. Um, and then you have, of course, Scott Stringer, uh, Corey Johnson, uh, you know, and others who, you know, might think about jumping into the race. So on some level, I think it's wide open. I want to mention something that I think has the ability to really influence the mayor's race in a very big way. Um, the voters uh, agreed on, in the last ballot um, to um, to have ranked choice voting on the 2021 uh, election ballot. And uh, that will start uh, potentially in March with a special election 
for Donovan Richards and for Richie Torres' seat. Uh, and that'll be the first time uh, people will have the opportunity uh, to rank up to five candidates uh, for mayor. And that is going to be a real electoral reform that has the ability to absolutely change our election. Uh, it will force candidates to talk to each other. It will force candidates not to do negative campaigning uh, if they want their fellow candidates, followers to rank them in a second or third a choice. It will also force candidates to talk to more people because you will now need a, a real majority to win. You will not be able to win with a small slice of the population, especially when there are a number of candidates. So I think that has the ability uh, to really change the mayoral election. And I'm hoping that people are educated on ranked choice voting. Uh, the Board of Elections is supposed to do an elect a campaign once they get finished this, uh, the counting of ballots. Uh, they will have to certify the new election machines or the upgrading of the current election machines and then educate uh, voters about ranked choice voting. And I do um, very, very optimistic that will have a, a real influence on on the election in a very positive way. And when you mentioned some of the candidates before, there was one name uh, that I was waiting to see if you would would mention, which was Sean Donovan, who took Sean in. Sean Donovan. I apologize. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes, he took in a, a good amount of money during this past period. But from what, you know, I was I really was fascinated to see how much money people took in because it just didn't feel like the right time to be out there aggressively fundraising for a campaign when we were dealing with a pandemic. What do you make of Sean Donovan's strength in his fundraising this past period? Well, I mean, let me just say also that I didn't mention Lorraine Sutton and yes. uh, Diana Ramirez, uh, two also two women candidates um, who are uh, thinking very, you know, who are uh, involved in the election. And I have to say that I met with Lorraine and she's um, really an interesting candidate um, and brings some interesting uh, uh, background to the election. You know, she's someone who worked with the homeless population. She's a former uh, army general um, and uh, quite an interesting candidate as well. Uh, openly gay and so forth. Um, look, uh, you know, my feeling is, and Sean is, is obviously very, very smart and brings a lot of city and federal experience to the table. Um, and, you know, he has certainly done a great job on the fundraising side. My sense is, is that, you know, and, and as you know, I once did have a fundraising business myself, uh, so I don't mean to put down fundraising, but I don't think it's as important as it once was. Um, in the sense that I think um, everybody will have the funds that they need to get their message out. I think that there will be there is now the uh, match, obviously, um, which, you know, will help lots of uh, candidates who are raising money. Um, and, you know, I think people are really interested in what people's ideas are, where they stand on issues. And so, you know, I think fundraising is obviously a piece of it and it certainly helps you get your message out. Um, but, you know, name recognition, having a base, um, you know, having a platform are all going to be very important in the upcoming election. So in the in the few minutes we have left, I do want to go to what, you know, what you do for a living. And all of us, you know, including in my full time job working with nonprofits, we've kind of had a, had to pivot how we do our work in you with your work. How have you had to pivot during this pandemic? 
Well, first of all, I have to say that, you know, my team is working harder than they've ever worked um, because we don't have to travel back and forth between uh, meetings. <laughs> we literally are on maybe 14 Zoom calls a day back to back. Um, so, you know, it, it, the work is incredibly, incredibly intense, as I think you, you would agree. Um, the problems that uh, that clients have are, are very significant, and we're all working so hard to help so many of our clients that are doing really, really important work survive during this period. Um, I think that we've been, and I say this to my staff all the time, um, when we come out of this crisis, uh, we will all be um, so much better for it uh, as professionals because we've all had to be so creative and to pivot uh, and and think creatively about how to do our work. Um, you know, as you know, uh, you know, a lot of our work is showing up. So you show up at meetings, you show up at City Hall, you show up at the State Council meeting, you go to hearings, you catch people. Uh, that That is the concept of lobbying, right? You're in the lobby and you meet people um, and, you, and you kind of catch them uh, and, and you're able to have conversations with people at events and so forth. Because we don't have any of that, we've been forced to be incredibly creative. We've been doing a lot of webinars uh, with government partners. Uh, we've been organizing virtual rallies, virtual lobbying days. Uh, we've been organizing issue uh, uh, issue panels, um, you know, and different ways to communicate. And we've been working very closely with your firm uh, and others uh, to amplify clients' messages. So, you know, we talk to clients about the importance of also doing PR and getting your message out. Uh, whether it's uh, having, um, uh, you know, speaking to editorial boards so that they understand your positions or whether it's uh, doing uh, op-eds, uh, you know, uh, getting your message out uh, in creative ways. Because, you know, there are so many different ways to influence the conversation. Uh, we need to work in coalitions. We need to work in sectors uh, to really be able to let folks know how various sectors are faring and what they need during this economy. And for many of them, uh, they need flexibility. They need government regulations to change. They need government to pay them uh, quicker um, so that they can afford to stay open. Um, so there's so many needs that so many of our not-for-profits, uh, health care facilities, um, you know, need today in order, small businesses, in order to be able to survive. Um, and people who do work with government um, need government to understand what those needs are in order for them to continue to be partners. And on that note, we're out of time. How can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, you know, we have a, a, a website. We're out on Twitter. Um, you know, we uh, can always be reached all the time. Uh, we try to be as responsive as possible. And um, I thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, wish you best of luck in continuing your good, good work in getting the messages out. Thank you. And I'm glad to see that you now are on social media in recent months. Yes, 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 yes. And I will be <laughs> sure to post this. <laughs> Suri Kassir, thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you.
So you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, and we're also streaming live at WBAI.org. I am your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with Suri Kassir about the 2021 landscape and also about the progressive movement. I'm going to get to the next guest in, in just a few moments, um, but I just want to kind of go back a few of something that uh, Suri was talking about that was really interesting was the number of the races uh, where there have been results as the absentees have been counted. I uh, just wanted to uh, mention one or two. She had talked about Joe Lentil uh, being ousted. That was by Emily Gallagher, who's an activist uh, who'd served on the community board. That's in the 50th uh, district. Uh, another one of the wins, someone who might be on our show next week, I believe we might have him, uh, was a DSA-backed housing organizer, Zoran Mamdani, defeated, in a surprise, Assemblymember Aravella Simotis in the 36th District by only a few hundred votes when the absentees were counted here in Queens. Um, and also uh, another development that just happened was uh, someone else who we had on the show recently. I'm not even sure if Reggie knows this. Walter Mosley, who was on the show a few weeks ago, uh, was beaten by uh, Farah Sofrant. I apologize if I pronounced that wrong. Forrest, a Democratic Socialist tenant organizer and, and a nurse in Brooklyn. So with that, I want to get to my final guest today. I had mentioned early on in the show uh, that a few weeks ago I had someone from Health and Hospitals on uh, to talk more broadly about uh, the COVID-19 testing program and about contact tracing, but I really wanted to find out more about contact tracing and what it involves. So joining me now is Maryama Joe, a case investigator. I'm going to let her talk about her background, but she is one of the uh, contact tracers who've been trying to track down who has been in touch with people who've tested positive for the virus. So with that, Maryama Joe, welcome to WBAI. Hi, thank you for having me. I didn't want to say much about your background. I'd like you to first tell our listeners a little about your public health background. Yeah, so um, I just finished up my first year at Columbia. So I'm at the Melman School of Public Health. Um, so I've been doing public health work for maybe about three years now. Uh, but this is my first time as a contact tracer. And what made you want to join the city's test and trace corps? Yeah, so um, back in March, I just felt very, um, I guess, helpless, and I felt like I needed to do something, but I wasn't sure how I could um, like contribute my public health knowledge. Um, and I'm originally from Harlem, so I wanted to find a way to give back to my own community. And so when I saw um, that people needed contact traces, I really thought that it was a really great fit with what I was studying and with the kinds of things I'm interested in. Um, so I'm really all about like giving back to my community in a way that makes sense to them. So my family is originally from Senegal. Um, so I understand, like, with a lot of immigrant communities, it's very difficult to understand um, basically this pandemic, COVID-19. Um, there's just been a lot of misinformation. So I wanted to be one of those um, sources of information that's actually giving people reliable info. I'm glad you just said that because I realize I do see a lot of misinformation that's out there. Mm -hmm. talk, to, talk about what your typical day is like. What is the typical day of a tracer? Yeah, so usually we take calls. Um, so we usually speak to people who have just tested positive for COVID-19 or they've been recently exposed and they're having symptoms. Um, so we kind of just want to see how they're doing on a human level and then also um, like what kinds of symptoms they're having 
and also what kinds of issues they're having with isolating and the kinds of resources they need to make that easier for them. Um, so that's where we step in to connect them with different places. And we also make sure that they also have um, reached out to their contacts. And if not, we actually are the ones who um, get that contact information to see who they may have exposed during their infectious period. Walk me, walk us through what some of the typical questions are that you would ask someone. Yeah, so um, before, like I said, we talk about their symptoms. So um, if they've had a fever, we kind of want to know like how high it is. And then also um, the other kinds of fevers, I mean, the other kinds of symptoms that are typical of someone who has COVID-19. Um, and then we also want to ask them, what kinds of things do you need to help um, yourself isolate? So are you in a, are you living in a situation where you're, in a multi-general household, for example, where you can't really stay in, in your own room and your own bathroom, because if so, we have those resources like connecting them to a hotel that can help them with do, doing that a lot more safely. You know, I would imagine that it can be a challenge at times that some people are, it's not even just reluctant to talk about it. Mm-hmm. They may not, they may not recall who they would have been in touch with. And I know being yeah. a former you know, former daily reporter, you know, how challenging it can be to get this information out of people sometimes. Um, talk a little about the challenges and how you can, can overcome them. Yeah, so um, as a native New Yorker, I know that as New Yorkers, we're very much so a different breed. Um, so sometimes <laughs> it, it is easy to talk to people, but sometimes there is a lot of skepticism, which is understandable because what you're giving, the information you're giving is very personal, it's very confidential. Um, so when you're kind of walking through um, someone's day, um, you just have to make sure that you're compassionate and then you're walking through, okay, what kinds of places do you typically um, go to? What kinds of places were you at in the last few days? Um, so that would be as specific as we can be to see who they may have contacted within the day that they've been infectious. And you mentioned, for instance, about a placement in hotels, for instance, if people don't have the space at home. Are there other types mm-hmm. of, uh, of, uh, of services that the Test and Trace Corps offers to those who are COVID positive? Yeah, that's actually something that probably one of my favorite parts of this job is connecting them to those resources. Um, So we connect them to a lot of different things like um, services for mental health. um, And then also if they are having difficulty getting food, we connect them to resource navigators if they're having difficulty getting medication as well. Um, Also, if they have a job where their employer is kind of skeptical about giving them that time off, we do connect them to how to get paid family leave as well. So that way we can make sure, okay, you're staying home, you're staying safe, but also you're getting paid and taking care of your needs as well. Yeah, you mentioned earlier about kind of wanting to give back to your community. Why was this important for you? Yeah, I think um, the main reason why is because I, since I grew up in Harlem and I've seen how much it's gentrified, um, I've seen that people lack a lot of basic resources sometimes, and it's the resources that they need to make that extra step to make the best out of their lives. Um, and I feel like with what happened with COVID, the way that it hit like Harlem and the Bronx and a lot of black and brown communities, you can see how disproportionate it was. And it really, it, it hits you personally when you're from those communities as well. Um, so that's why it's so important to me that people get the resources that they need in a very timely manner as well. And uh, if you have it handy, I'm putting you on the spot. If you have it handy, what are some of the, where should people go? Where can they get this information if they want, if they listen to this now and they, you know, want to, you know, find out more about resources and what steps they should take? Yeah. So um, you should go to nychealthandhospitals.org forward slash test dash and dash trace forward slash. Um, so there you'll find so much information about the program. Um, if you have any questions about what it is that we're doing, I think that's a really great resource um, just to get a lot of basic questions answered. 
and I've got just about a minute or so left. I do want to go back. You know, when you told your family that you wanted to do this and become a contact tracer, what did they say? You know, what was the discussion like? What questions did they have? And what did you tell them about your motivation? Um, I think they were a little skeptical because at first I think they thought that I would be going to people's houses. So there are um, community engagement specialists who are doing that. Um, but since it was remote, I think they were very comfortable with it. And they're also very supportive because they know the importance of community and making sure you're giving back. Um, and because I'm part of, I'm in my, um, my public health program right now, they see that this is a really great way for me to actually put forward my knowledge and give back, which is actually the main reason why I decided to study public health in the first place. So why not do it during the pandemic, you know? I, I guess I should ask you, when your work is complete here, what's next for you? Yeah, so I'm really interested in global health, um, as well as um, health issues with immigrant communities here in New York City. So I really do want to do more with research um, because I see how powerful research is with making sure that you have the data to help communities. Because if you don't have that information, you can't help in the specific ways that those communities need it. Um, So just being a really large advocate through my research is something that I'm really excited to do after graduation. Great. And just as I close, once again, can you remind our listeners of that website address? Yeah, so it's nychealthandhospitals.org, um, hospitals as in a, with the S at the end, um, forward slash test dash and dash trace forward slash. Mariama Joe, I want to thank you so much for taking the time with uh, to be with me, uh, with me here on WBAI today. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. So you've been listening to Driving Forces uh, streaming live at WBAI.org and also live at 99.5 FM. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking to Mariama Joe, a case investigator who's part of the city's uh, uh, test and trace corps. Uh, and this has just been fascinating to me. And I would encourage anyone, if you think you, or if you have tested positive or you think you have come in, in contact with someone, it's important to get tested. It's important to make sure that we find the sources of this virus, because there are probably a number of people out there who don't know uh, that they have contracted the virus. I know someone who just recently uh, went for a test, found out that he had the antibodies and then realized that it was early in February uh, that he was in, he had a, a week or two when he was incredibly sick and realized that had to be uh, the time where he had this virus. Um, and then he started to think about everyone he'd been in touch with uh, when he was actually not out of work for that uh, week, week and a half. Uh, so it's really important, though, if you think that you've been in touch with uh, someone who has tested positive to self-quarantine and just to take those steps that Uh, We now, even our president is saying we should do. He's finally come around to say wear a mask, uh, which many of us have been doing for quite some time now. And we're going to get used to it. We are used to it. and We know we're going to have to stick with it for a while. Uh, I want to also thank you for sticking with WBAI during this time. I mean, it has been a challenging period, and I'm hoping that, you know, you carved out time during the day uh, to listen to WBAI most days. Uh, We... You know, I talk about this a lot. I cannot talk about it enough about the value of having a progressive station like this, uh, you know, that is 
you know, non-corporate, non-commercial. I'm sick of turning on stations where all I do is hear commercials all the time when I just want the news or I want to listen to a talk show without listening to constant commercials from corporate America. And you can get that here in BAI. And you know what? We have something for everyone. So you want great music? You, we've got it here at BAI. You want wonderful insight? You want to talk about criminal justice reform? We've got shows for that as well. We have something for everyone. If you like Driving Forces, or frankly, if you like any show, in the name of this show or any of those shows, you can make a contribution to support WBAI. I've mentioned it before during the show. I think it's important to be able to support this station. That's why I did it a few weeks ago. I bought two of the WBAI branded masks. Reggie, you could point out, I haven't gotten them yet. I'll get them soon. But you can get them for $35 each by making a donation here, or you can become a BAI buddy. That's something I do as well, where it's just a recurring uh uh, contribution that I make every month comes right off, uh, right onto my credit card, right over to WBAI. And you could do that by calling 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. You can also text. I often forget to say you can text, but if you're walking and listening to us now on your phone and it's streaming at WBAI.org, you can just text WBAI to the number 41444. Text WBAI to 41444, and then you'll get a couple of prompts, and it helps just to walk you right through to make a contribution. It's incredibly important that we keep WBAI on the air because we provide a valued uh, service to, to the city and, and beyond in our broadcast area. As Linda Perry says, I'm going to keep using this line from now on. We are the little radio station with a big heart. Been around for 60 years and we want to be around for 60 more. And if you're at your computer, if you're listening to us there right now, easy. Go online. Give to. That is the number two. Give to WBAI.org. Once again, that's give to WBAI.org. So I've been trying to think over, you know, I've got just about a minute or two left. I've been trying to think over the rest of the summer. August is usually a challenging time uh, for me to find a lot of the guests that I want when we're normally off. But amid the pandemic, my view is a lot of people are not going away. So fortunately, Crossing my fingers, this still happens. We're supposed to have Jamal Bowman, who defeated Elliot Engel, on the show next Thursday. And also, my other guest, I'm finishing her book now. I'm probably going to finish it by tomorrow. Claire Bond Potter, the author of Political Junkies. And here's the subtitle, and that's why I said I had to read this book. From Talk Radio to Twitter, How Alternative Media Hooked Us on Politics and Broke Our Democracy. I just finished the chapter about uh, the evolution of bloggers. I can't believe how... Uh, how far back that was right now when I think of this year, but you know everything is just moving so fast. And uh, I was in government when uh, blogging was taking off, but this is going to be a great conversation with Claire. I'm enjoying her book. I have a ton of post-it stickers in there now ready to talk to her about it. Also, I will be back this Sunday at 10 a.m. with City Watch. My co-host David Brand is going to be off that day. My, I'm going to focus on animal rights. I've got guests from Nye Class and also voters for animal rights and hopefully an assemblywoman that just had a measure uh, pass in one of the legislative bodies up in Albany to be able to talk about animal rights. I know the last time I did this, I had a lot of feedback from people, so I wanted to have another show just on animal rights. If you missed any part of the show, visit us at WBAI.org. Go to Programs and then Archives. The show is going to be up in about 10 minutes. 
Again, I want to thank you for joining me today. My thoughts are with all of you. I wish you good health in the coming days and weeks. And I again want to thank our wonderful Reggie in the studio. Have a great day. is so significant for me. I remember the days that we were fighting against. Amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo issued this executive order. All people in public must have a mask or nose covering, mouth and nose covering, and they must wear it in a situation where you cannot or are not maintaining social distancing. Governor Cuomo on continuing to stop the spread of the coronavirus and WBAI in the beginning of its spring fund drive to raise money for this listener-sponsored station to keep it going. We've created face masks with our own logo and a message that reads, Keep Free Speech Radio Alive. You can get a face mask in white or black by donating $35. You become a listener sponsor, a member of WBAI for a full year, and you can choose the face mask in white or black. WBAI has created these face masks for you and as a way to keep this radio station afloat. $35 contribution, 516-620-3602. Say you want a WBAI face mask in white or black. It has a saying that reads, keep Free Speech Radio Alive. You'd be helping us to keep WBAI and Free Speech Radio Alive. 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org and select the WBAI logo face mask in white or black. $35. You're a member of WBAI for a full year and you're supporting this radio station. You're helping to keep our essential workers working and you're helping WBAI pay the bills in the beginning of our fund drive, our May fund drive. We know how difficult it is, how hard it is for many people. If you can afford it, please become a member of WBAI for $35 a year and select the face mask as a gift to you. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. My name is Eli Smith from the Jalopy Theater, and I'll be hosting Folk Radio coming up on Thursday uh, from 10 until midnight. We'll be bringing you some down-home grassroots music, including blues, folk songs, traditional jazz, ballad singing, and lots more. That's music from right here in New York City, heading down to Appalachia and the Deep South, and way out west and all across the country, as well as music from all around the world. Please tune your radios to WBAI or WBAI.org on Thursday from 10 to midnight and catch Folk Radio. Hope to see you there. WBAI listeners and supporters. Tune in Friday, July 31st from 10 p.m. to midnight for the second report of 2020 from the WBAI Local Station Board. This month, you'll hear from various members of the board. 
They'll talk about their responsibilities, recent developments throughout the network, and ask for your ideas on how to build a stronger WBAI. So mark that date on your calendar. Friday, July 31st, 10 p.m. to midnight. The second report of 2020 from the WBAI Local Station Board. Only on WBAI in New York, 99.5 on your FM dial. Streaming live at WBAI.org. All right, uh, this is the, ooh, that's hot. Okay, wait a minute. Okay, ah, now I'm back. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org online. The previous program 